Good morning, Connecticut. To our friends across the sound, it's John Voquette, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Thanks for tuning into our award-winning public affairs program for the people, bringing you even more information to help address concerns in our communities tied to youth, the economy, public health and safety, aging, education, and the environment. And indeed, today's show is going to focus exclusively on the environment and the ways we can help save, improve, and preserve our Mother Earth. We're going to open up talking with the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group at UConn and the creeping harm invasives are doing to our yards and communities. We're also going to invite anyone interested to save a few bucks and register early for the upcoming Invasive Plant Symposium up at UConn. Then we'll replay a visit with the Connecticut Council on Environmental Quality to recap their annual report covering all the things we're doing wrong and doing right to help keep the state's environment healthy and thriving. And then we're going to wrap inviting you to help clean up the river. The Connecticut River Watershed Council's 20th annual Source to Sea Cleanup is coming up, and we'll talk about why more than 2,000 state residents, hikers, anglers, boaters, and more will be coming out on the weekend of September 23rd and about how you and your group can pitch in to help. We'll be back with these segments and more on the award-winning For the People with me, John Voquette, right after this news sticking with that environmental bent there's always something wild going on at connecticut's only zoo get ready to head to the beardsley zoo to say hello to squirt sal south and tubs four african black-footed penguins that have spent the summer and the early fall at the zoo this exhibit is only going to be available through september 30th so you better get down to the zoo now the zoo's education department is planning wild adventure animal shows, animal bites, storytelling, and scavenger hunts, all designed to help you learn and care about penguins. For details on this and the many other interesting and entertaining programs on tap, call 203-394-6565 or visit beardsleyzoo.org. All right. Well, for the last weekend of August, uh, it's appropriate we bring it all back to Mother Earth. So we're going to be having a, a few segments today all concentrating on uh, environmental issues and we're starting it off with a, a brand new friend to the program and I'm so pleased to meet her and as we just joked uh, you know uh, typically people walk around with a business card and my uh, guest this morning to start off the show Donna Ellis uh, has a business card that's the size of a poster board so here check this out Donna Ellis is Senior Extension Educator and Integrated Pest Management Program Coordinator, as well as the co-chair for the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group at the University of Connecticut Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture. Almost made it there. Donna almost got through it all without tripping, but uh, I think we got it all in there. Thanks for joining us. It's uh, a couple of important uh, things coming up uh, in your world. Uh, I'm one of those people that just uh, sees funny things growing up alongside my house or my walkways that I never seem to remember from my childhood or even my 20s or 30s, these crazy plants creeping all over the place. And I just hack them out. And it seems like the faster I hack, the faster they and 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 more pervasively they come back. And I'm now discovering that's probably because they are invasive plants. And uh, appropriately, uh, we are bringing you on because the Working Group Symposium on Invasive Plants in Our Changing World is coming up 
on Tuesday, October 11th, but we are actually bringing you onto the program here on this last weekend of August because you're offering an early registration benefit that ends September 12th. So if uh, you out there in the listening world are also interested in invasive plants, maybe you're a uh, an agricultural uh, industry worker or somebody who's also just sick of these things being around your house, your neighborhood, uh, or your community, uh, there might be some great information for you in this. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about it uh, in just a few minutes with Donna. But in the meantime, uh, let's get into uh, some of the boilerplate, Donna. First of all, uh, there's also, I guess, some concerns about non-native uh, invasive plants. Uh, let's uh, let's talk about them and 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 why they are such a big concern and are spurring uh, this workshop you have coming up. Thank you. Non-native invasive plants are here to stay. Some have been around for hundreds of years. Others, more recently introduced in the last fifteen to twenty-five years, they have been introduced from other continents. Some are found all over the world, but can be particularly problematic in our region. They are concerned because they grow very aggressively, as you mentioned, noticing them more and more, and they will outcompete or out, outgrow native plants. And when that happens, you see decreases in the value of not only a backyard or a local community, but in natural areas, in woodlands and wetlands and and meadows. And you see loss of wildlife. You see changes in in wildlife that can no longer be supported by those native plants. And your uh, your office, uh, in conjunction with some other uh, experts on the subject, have published a Connecticut invasive plant list. Um, If you were to look across the landscape of the exponentially growing number of invasive plants that are uh, uh, starting to spring up here across Connecticut, um, perhaps even going back historically, um, you know, more than a few years, could you uh, cite what you think are one or two of the uh, most uh, impactive uh, invasives that are that are that are really like doing the most harm right now. Well, we have both the terrestrial plants that are growing on on land and drier areas, and then we have the aquatic plants that can be found in fresh water and some brackish areas. For the terrestrial plants, based on the number of inquiries we get and the difficulty in controlling them. I would say the top of my my own personal list would be Japanese knotweed. Um, A a close second would be Oriental bittersweet. Uh, These are both perennial species, so they grow back year after year. The bittersweet is a woody vine. Japanese knotweed is a herbaceous perennial that does die back each year, but it has very aggressive underground creeping stems that can continue to spread and make it very troublesome to really remove on a permanent basis. We have there are many other species on our our state list, which we have had since two thousand and three. We have ninety seven plants, and there are certainly I would say probably a, a dozen or so that are of most concern to people and they may be most familiar with in the spring. We have garlic mustard, we have um, other woodland invasives like Japanese barberry, winged euonymus, Norway maple. there are a lot of of shrub and vine honeysuckles. And the list can can go on and on. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, have we seen any invasives that have come to Connecticut that have actually either had no no negative impact on the environment, or even um, have uh, had some uh, positive impact on the environment? 
That's a very good question. I, I think it depends on who you're talking. Who to. you're talking to? Yes, <laughs> plants that perhaps at this point have shown no impact. Maybe some of the newer invaders. Uh, we have some plants on the list that we call potentially invasive because they're not found as frequently in these natural areas. Uh, so it may just be a matter of time before we see changes in the plant inventory uh, uh, in those particular habitats. Many of the plants that have been around for some time, however, and or are more well-established, certainly do have, have negative, impact, negative impacts. Um, we can always use resources, funding to continue to get grants and study long-term impacts because these are not usually not quick um, research projects. They involve looking for many years at sites just to see changes in the, in the flora and fauna. Mm. Um, and, and then beyond that, how, what's the soil makeup? What's going on with, with seeds and the repository of seeds? Um, how is this impacting wildlife? So I, I think overall we, we are seeing more negative impacts. You know, certainly one could talk about benefits of any plant. I mean, ha- plants are, are certainly beneficial to, to having nothing on a, you know, on a on mm-hmm. soil, and, and they do have a lot of, of general benefits. But I think, um, you know, comparing the two, the, the native plants or the non-native but non-invasive plants are, would be the preferred species. Hmm. How uh, would uh, a couple of the uh, worst uh, culprits in the invasive plant world impacting Connecticut? Um, how did they get here? Is it a? It, was it just um, you know the one single person that may have come back from California or abroad uh, with uh, with seeds or with uh, with an actual uh, version of this plant who he threw it out or put it in the ground and it literally all started from uh, from from one seed or one source or is it more that there was a uh, kind of a movement of bringing these plants to the area, and they got put in in strategic areas and just uh, are now out of control. Uh, I would say both of those situations apply. The introductions of the invasive species can be intentional or non-intentional. If there's a non-intentional introduction, it might be a hitchhiker. It could be a couple of seeds that are in a container of an, a plant that might have been shipped from a nursery from another part of the state. We We actually have documentation of a plant called myelminate weed that mm. was introduced in Connecticut back in the, about the mid-1980s, and we suspect it may have come from a shipment of mulch from the mid-Atlantic region or possibly some nursery stock, but even the introduction to the United States happened back in the 1930s when uh, plants were brought into an arboretum in Pennsylvania. Hmm. The vines started to germinate, and the manager of the arboretum said, oh, this is interesting, let me just let it grow, grow a little bit and see what happens. And by that time, you know, a few years had passed, and it, was, it, was, it really um, jumped beyond a, a, a controlled means. Wow. Have, have there been any, um, any of these invasives that you have determined or suspect um, you know, Connecticut has been sort of ground zero for the introduction versus um, having some of these perhaps coming into the country from in other regions and then being brought to Connecticut or the Northeast? Um, I, I don't. Well, I, I believe from Milam in Connecticut, 
this is again an accidental introduction. I believe yeah. it was first documented in Connecticut for New England, and then it, from that point it has moved to most of the other New England states. But that also may have been based on botanists and people who are out in the field that might have noticed it at the time, and we may have had uh, just more more eyes in the field to to tra- track it. Okay. Well, how does uh, your organization and the uh, the several that you uh, interact with uh, at UConn and in Connecticut uh, inf- help inform people uh, about both the risk of uh, of introduction and and how to uh, uh, live with and maintain or eradicate these plants? We conduct a lot of educational outreach to the public, to our uh, our stakeholders that include municipal staff, local, state, federal agencies, a lot of environmental organizations. We have um, meetings during the year. We have, a, we have a website for the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group, the symposia that we mentioned. Those are held every two years. Um, many of us also do local programming. We might work, give presentations to a garden club, to an association of um, conservation inland wetlands agents, for example. So a lot of different communities and organizations are interested in learning about invasives, so we do uh, quite a bit of, the, of those activities. Um, we have online reporting forms for some of the invasive species, like Milam in it, giant hogweed, purple loosestrife, for example. In Connecticut, we have, in addition to the working group, we have an appointed nine-member council called the Connecticut Invasive Plants Council. They meet on a regular basis. They review our state list. Uh, some of our regulations are part of the Connecticut statute. So we have a lot of different levels where the outreach and the information is disseminated. Okay. I, uh, before we uh, go on and, and uh, talk a little bit and invite folks to your upcoming symposium, um, are there any invasives uh, right now in Connecticut that are either easy, uh, like, I guess, uh, you know, if, if easily identifiable and that uh, the average person might be able to uh, um, actually have have an effect on in terms of either uh, uh, weeding them out or cutting them down or treating them in a, in a, in a, in a safe and environmentally friendly way? Absolutely. We provide a lot of information on recognizing and identifying invasive plants. Um, I've had received many photos via email. Um, people have brought in specimens, but we have a lot of online resources, especially on the, the working group's website, and you can even just Google plants on the Internet to see what they look like. We recommend making sure of the identification so you're not, that before you do any control, try to remove these plants early if you do your work in the spring or when the plants are young versus being older and well-established, you're going to be much more successful with your control efforts. So we, we certainly have um, successes that have been reported. That'll be uh, one of the sessions featured at our upcoming symposium so that we can encourage others to do the same, to work in their land trust or open space parcel or even in their backyard and look for these invasives and try to remove them as best they can. One of the points that we do stress, however, is that monitoring and long-term control is the key to success. No matter what your method of control, whether it's you know, mechanical um, or, or using herbicides or, or not, uh, you want to stay with your control for several years, and the results of your efforts should be rewarded because with time you should have less to remove out of the, 
out of that particular area. Excellent. Well, we'll hit folks with the website one more time, but we do want to tell them now the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group, CIPWG, C-I-P-W-G, uh, can be uh, accessed and its entire uh, body of resources uh, online uh, at yukon.edu. So it's C-I-P-W-G dot yukon.edu, or you can always uh, outreach Donna Ellis, Donna.ellis at yukon.edu. Uh, and now on to the upcoming October 11th Invasive Plant Working Group uh, Biennial Symposium that is happening up at stores at the UConn campus. And as we said earlier in the program, if you uh, just joined us uh, and you'd like to attend, there's a benefit if you register by September 12th. So we're bringing you this program uh, nice and early, even though the event isn't until the middle of October. So uh, give us a quick rundown, Donna, on uh, some of the high point uh, speakers you're bringing some real heavy hitters in the invasive plant world into this conference, aren't you? We're very excited about the lineup of speakers this year. This is our, our eighth biennial symposium. We sold out in advance uh, two years ago with 500 people attending, so it's a great day with lots of information. Our keynote will be Jill Swearingen, who is the lead author of the Plant Invaders of Mid-Atlantic Natural Areas, a great publication. And while it features Mid-Atlantic invasives, many of those are applicable and found throughout Connecticut and New England. So Jill will be giving uh, the keynote called... Uh, her talk is entitled, We're Moving On Up, Invasive Plants Heading North. Um, we're also going to have um, uh, a talk by Carl Wagner, who's chair of the Connecticut Council on Environmental Quality. We will have some, some updates from the Connecticut Invasive Plants Council with the vice chair, uh, William Hyatt, with Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. And in the morning, it'll be a general session. And in the afternoon, we have concurrent sessions where the attendees will be able to choose from uh, two different tracks. Our talks will feature everything from updates on what the states are doing regarding invasives and legislation and how it involves the industries. We're going to have some success stories of, of, of areas where invasives have been managed. We're going to talk about biological control, aquatic invasives, native plants, which are what we're hoping will will flourish as invasives are controlled, and also some updates on some you know, what to watch out for the future. Excellent. And uh, just uh, give folks the, the, the brief on the uh, early registration. Yes, the, the early registration fee of $50 uh, is available if you, you can either go on to the website that John provided and register online, or there's also on the website a mail-in form if you want to send in a check. Um, after September 12th, the fee goes up to $60, but uh, we feel it's very reasonable either way and, and hope that people can join us. There's a student fee of $25. If you're an, an active high school or college student, just bring your ID and you can register for $25 at any time. Excellent. And we, sh- we should uh, shamelessly promote the fact that not only will our friend uh, longtime resource to the award-winning For the People, Carl Wagoner, uh, be uh, one of the keynote speakers at this upcoming event, but he will also be uh, rerunning the council's uh, top environmental issues uh, on the very next segment on our program this morning. So uh, we'll hear from Carl today, and then we'll hear from him on Tuesday, October 11th at the con- 
Connecticut uh, in, Invasive Plant Working Group Symposium. Invasive plants in our changing world learn from the past, prepare for the future. It's presented by the Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group on Tuesday, October 11th from 8 to 4.30, a full day of great information, speakers, networking, and more. It's at the Student Union at UConn up in stores. And once again, if you're interested in going, you can save a little bit if you register by September 12th. Uh, there's websites that you can access or you can just get in touch with our guest this morning, Donna Ellis, 860-486-6448, donna.ellis at uconn.edu, uh, or you can go to their website, as we said, uh, the working group, cipwg.uconn.edu, uh, for both referrals to the symposium and tons and tons of information and links to find out all you need to know about uh, helping to mitigate or get rid of invasive plants uh, in your yard, in your community, in our lifetime here in Connecticut. Donna, thanks so much for being part of the program. Learned a lot this morning and we hope uh, uh, to talk to you again. Good luck with the symposium. Around this time every year, we're uh, pleased to visit with our friend Carl Wagoner. He's executive director of the Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, As we indicated a couple of weeks ago, uh, they released uh, their latest report, their annual report on Connecticut's environment. There's some uh, really good news. There's some uh, issues uh, involved that you need to understand if you care about Connecticut's environment. And uh, we'll find out uh, where there's still some room for improvement. Uh, Carl's always a great and engaging guest and uh, we're glad to have you back, Carl. Uh, in these kind of crazy budgetary times, it's nice to know that we still have uh, friends and offices that we can go to for uh, engaging guests here on the award-winning For the People. Thanks for calling in. Oh, sure. Thank you, John. So, uh, first of all, give us the uh, the big view from uh, from 10,000 feet. How's Connecticut looking compared to our last visit in 2015? Well, some, there, there is some good news. Uh, in fact, uh, for the first time, the CEQ ranked the news this year. We we kind of put everything in order of good to bad on our summary page. And um, the good news is that it, 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 some of our some of our wildlife species uh, have been improving steadily, such as bald eagles and some of our shorebirds, like piping plovers. Long Island Sound has been improving steadily, and most of the time, the air quality has been improving. That's not true for the summertime, but uh, through most of the year, the air quality improves, and um, public drinking water has improved as well. And the thing that, the one thing that they all have in common, from bald eagles to air quality to drinking water, is that they depend on successful regulatory programs, successful uh, regulations on pesticides and air quality and 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 uh, what's in the drinking water but if you go down to some of the other things we care about such as the uh, the amount of land that's being preserved and some of the wildlife that depends on our forests uh, we're not doing as well and it's because they depend on the state's investment in land conservation and wildlife conservation and things like that and we're lagging there, and it shows those things are not doing well. 
Okay, well, let's. Uh, I've got the uh, the uh, 2015 at a glance here, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking at a couple of, as you mentioned, uh, bird species that are topping the list. Uh, uh, our our majestic bald eagles that we uh, love to go and visit with up in, on the Pomparag River, and uh, that mm-hmm. uh, exist in a number of other locations in the state of Connecticut, as well as the uh, the now famous or in some circles infamous piping plovers, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, occasionally cause a little ruckus uh, on the environmental front or for folks that need to work or interrupt their environment. Um, so uh, t- tell us a little bit about what's so important about uh, this one of the largest bird species in Connecticut and certainly one of the most demure. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. But we, we select the species um, for these reports because they represent something bigger. Like bald eagles, uh, which, is, which is a success story, um, has come back for a number of reasons. But one of the biggest is this, this, the country and the state decided to ban DDD and a lot of other really harmful pesticides decades ago. And we're, we're finally, well, not finally, but we're reaping the benefits of that. And uh, there were other factors as well, but that's, that was huge. And for the piping plovers, they share a, a, a beach habitat with a lot of other species. So we track them not just because we like piping plovers, which are mm. great little birds, uh, but because they represent the, uh, the conditions along the shoreline. And uh, that's a habitat that's being squeezed between the rising Long Island Sound and the uh, land behind it. Hmm. And, there's, and, and other, other species share that habitat. So most of the species in our report are, are selected because they represent something bigger. And, and going back to the eagle, for example, that, you know, the osprey and a lot of other birds of prey have uh, come back for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. So by by uh, kind of keeping a tab on on these two bird species, um, they sort of act as indirect barometers uh, that uh, have indicators on other things in in their environment. From uh, I'm sure water quality to fish uh, mm-hmm. to uh, as you said the encroachment on the uh, limited uh, habitat of the plovers. Yes, exactly. They 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 indicate condition of the environment. Excellent. Uh, well, uh, we've uh, we've already seen a couple of uh, air pollution or air quality warnings coming out of DEEP, uh, the Connecticut mm-hmm. Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, over the past few weeks. Uh, yes. and, and there's no sign that these uh, air quality warnings or air quality issues are going to be really uh, dissipating, especially when we have these long, thick periods of hot summer weather. Uh, the CEQ Air Pollution Index uh, is something that that was uh, marked up high on uh, this year's 2015 uh, Council on Environmental Quality report. Um, so how are we doing uh, from uh, the perspective of air quality um, when we average it down into the 365 days of the year? When you average it uh, throughout the year, the, the long-term trend has been very good. Uh, over the last 10 years, uh, it, it, there's a there's measurably less pollution in the air on average, which is a very good thing. However, in 2015, uh, the pollution went up a little, uh, and it's mostly because of summertime air pollution. In 2016, we already have, uh, we've seen a dozen bad days already, so Mm -hmm. I don't expect to 
seen any improvement in yeah, I, I, 16. I guess one of the interesting uh, dynamics is that uh, as the price of gasoline has plummeted in the past couple of years, uh, you know, people are not only driving more, but they're more inclined to maybe take the bigger vehicle because uh, it's either more comfortable or carries more people and stuff. And, uh, of course, as the price of gas goes down, there is a little bit of a, a nudge upward in, in terms of the issues related to air quality, right? Definitely. And it, uh, that's important. Uh, for about 10 years, uh, Connecticut residents were uh, on a trend of using less gasoline every year. Uh, some of that had to do with the economy, I'm sure. Uh, people couldn't afford as many trips, and some people were unemployed and, and so forth. But um, and for some of the reasons you mentioned, um, people are burning more gasoline now. And, uh, you know, I think also, I think a lot of that improvement over the past 10 years was due to the fact that people were buying more efficient cars. You, you traded in your car, it, your new one would use less gasoline. But for whatever reason, uh, in 2015, uh, we reversed that trend, and now we're, we're burning more gasoline. And uh, we never used to include that in our annual report, but we just added that to our report um, because it's, we put it under climate changer because uh, it, it's, a, it's a significant uh, factor in the amount of uh, carbon dioxide we put into the air, but it also has the other direct effect on air quality. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's a direct link between how much how much gas we burn and, and the quality of our air and our so-called carbon footprint. Yeah. Well, we'll go from uh, from the air to the water. I, I guess about this time last year, if you uh, mentioned the issue of water quality in Connecticut to people, uh, they wouldn't really care that much. And then suddenly Flint, Michigan happened. And, oh, yeah. and a lot more people are suddenly wondering what's coming out of the tap, what's going into their aquifer and eventually coming out of their, their well, what they're drinking, what they're bathing in. Uh, mm -hmm. How are we doing in Connecticut with our public drinking water supply? Well, people should, people should be pleased that they live in Connecticut with regard to their drinking water. I mean, Connecticut has been ahead of the curve on, on drinking water, and... Well, you can't say what happened in Flint could never happen here. It's unlikely for a number of reasons, but probably the biggest reason is is that in Connecticut, public drinking water um, does not come from or cannot come from a river or other water body that receives uh, pollution, sewage, industrial pollution, anything like that. That's not true in most of the country. Most of the cities in this country take their water out of things like the nearest river, which, you know, somebody's dumping in upstream, not in Connecticut. And uh, as a result, public drinking water supplies uh, meet water quality standards the vast majority of the time in this state. It's, it's, it's one of our success stories. It's a strong regulatory approach, and it works. And uh, if you're on wells, you, you really, in addition to the fact that might be drying up now. Uh, mm. You really do have to pay attention to what's going on in your surrounding area, though. I mean, wells can be polluted by road salt or, or somebody dumping something. It, it, people must be vigilant, but 
uh, Connecticut compared to Flint or someplace like that, we're, we're ahead of the game. Excellent. Carl Wagner is with us. He's uh, the executive director for Connecticut's Council on Environmental Quality. The council just completed uh, gathering its data and has, has finished its uh, 2015 uh, annual report on environmental quality in Connecticut. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about some other types of water courses here in the state, as well as uh, some of the food we take out of the ocean. Uh, land and farm preservation and a couple of other important indicators uh, and trends that are showing up on the 2015 CEQ report. We'll be back with Carl Wagner in just a moment. Stick with us. Do you love Connecticut? If you do, there are hundreds of nonprofit agencies, community groups, and grassroots causes that would love to have your support. You can learn about many of them through Love CT. Just go to our radio station website, hit the event guide tab, and click on to Love CT to help the many causes supported by Connoisseur Media. I'm Director of Public Affairs, John Voquette. We'll be back to the award-winning For the People right after this news. Connecticut's own Kennedy Center is an internationally accredited nonprofit community-based rehabilitation organization that annually serves 2,400 individuals facing physical and developmental challenges across the state. And they're offering two ways to help support their work and specifically their autism program in September. The first is the second annual Kennedy Center Autism Project Cup. This soccer fundraiser for all ages and abilities is hosted by the Goal Sports in Stratford on Saturday, September 17th from 3 to 6. This non-competitive indoor tournament features teams of five or more players raising $500 or more for the cause. Registration is open until Friday, September 9th. Go to kc-autism.org for details or show your colors at the second annual Kennedy Center 5K Fun Run Walk Stroll and Autism Spect Run on Saturday, September 24th. Participants of all ages are encouraged to dress in as many colors as they can possibly find and run, walk, or stroll this fun-filled 3.1-mile course through Great Hollow Lake and Wolf Park in Monroe. Race registration opens at 7.30 and closes at 8.45. Participation fee is $35 for adults, $20 for children, and students are just $25. Bucks. There's an early bird discount of $5 available until September 4th. And if you'd like more information, on both events again visit kc-autism.org thanks for hanging around uh, we appreciate your interest in connecticut's environment and i'm sure even more than me my guest does it's carl wagoner he's the executive director of the council on environmental quality uh, a organization that uh, not only serves the state and uh, acts as a watchdog on environmental issues but publishes a very comprehensive report that's now accompanied with a really cool interactive couple of uh, web pages that you could go to to really drill into some of the specific information. We've already talked about a number of important issues, including, uh, as we heard from Carl, uh, a real uptick and uh, the fact that we should really be proud of the quality of our drinking water in Connecticut. But I guess there's also some good news in terms of other water courses, including uh, the all-important Long Island Sound. Uh, Carl, how are we doing uh, with the sound and the uh, various levels of uh, of dangerous uh, runoff that we talked about so uh, gravely and with such great concern, uh, you know, uh, when we first met, uh, you know, five, six, mm-hmm. seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, since uh, 2013, really, we've been on a winning streak in terms of the quality of the sound. Um, this is a very good thing. I think 
what we're seeing is a payoff for all of the efforts that the state and the cities and towns have made in reducing uh, raw sewage and uh, poorly treated sewage that goes into the sound. We've removed a lot of the nitrogen from the effluent that goes into the sound, into the rivers and the sound. Nitrogen leads indirectly to uh, low oxygen conditions in the sound. Sometimes people call it a dead zone. It can be a dead zone when it's when it's really bad. Uh, you get areas of the sound with with just uh, not enough oxygen to support fish and lobsters and all the things we like. Mm-hmm. But over the last three years, uh, the uh, the sound has had adequate oxygen. Almost all of the time. I mean, it's. I think last year was about 95 percent of the sound had adequate oxygen all year round. So there's that five percent, but uh, but it's it's a winning streak. And um, in fact, we're already above the goal that we set for ourselves as as a as a state and a region. But you can't pay too much attention to the yearly data. You have to look at the long long term trend. But it's been positive. Mm-hmm. And again, it's because of uh, a lot of investment in pollution control. And we have another indicator which shows uh, the amount of nitrogen in the water, and that's been going down, and that's good. Mm-hmm. More, less nitrogen, more oxygen. Um, it's, it's a good thing. Mm. Uh, but it, we're at the point now where a lot of that um, nitrogen that goes into the sound comes from the things you mentioned, runoff from pavement, from lawns, from agricultural areas, a lot of nitrogen gets into the sound and uh, leads to indirectly to uh, low oxygen conditions. And uh, I, I guess it's ironic that we might be doing better over the last couple of years because they've been dry years and we're not getting as much rainfall. Mm-hmm. So with less rainfall, you're getting less runoff. And we, I hope it's not just <laughs> just that yeah. that's causing... Uh, Long Island Sound to improve, but yeah. uh, it's a factor. I mean, so if we had a lot of rain, you might see the uh, nitrogen sure. runoff go back up, but yeah. we'll, we'll see. We'll well, you, you, and, and you return to a very interesting and uniting point, as we talked in our first segment, about the uh, kind of barometers or indicators that you could garnish over uh, or gather uh, about other aspects of the environment based on the health of things like bald eagles and piping plovers. Uh, mm-hmm. We can also look at things like our shellfish beds and our lobsters to get a little bit of a, uh, a handle on what's going on uh, in the environment where they live. And um, on those two subjects, I see there is some reason to be at least guarded uh, despite the upward trend in health of Long Island sound that's true and in the shellfish beds um the area of shellfish beds that are unrestricted that is you can go out collect the oysters or the clams and um sell them or eat them without restriction that area is measured and that has not improved in the past few years in fact it's gone down a bit and uh there are some theories on that the um one of them is is that uh Coming back to this runoff idea of runoff, when we do get heavy rains, it carries the runoff further out into the sound, and with that comes, you know, uh, contamination of all sorts. Um, and it's it's a long-term problem. 
the state uh, monitors that. Um, it's going to be a while before you, I think you see a lot of change because you, you still do have problems. You still do have, when it does rain heavily, you still have raw sewage going into the sound. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is not good. And, so and, you ha- and you have all this runoff, too. So it's a, so it's a, a relatively similar issue between uh, the shellfish beds and the lobster markets. It is, but the lobsters the lobsters have another problem, and that is that the water in Long Island Sound is warming up. Uh, Long term trend is toward warmer water, and lobsters like colder water. So, if you've been reading about this, you've probably read that the lobsters are booming up in Maine, and they're uh, they, they they stay at a low level here, and and a lot of people don't have uh, very good forecasts for the lobsters in Long Island Sound. Even if the water quality improves, they have the temperature problem. So mm-hmm. we'll have to we'll have to watch that too. But there's very little we can do about the rise in the temperature yeah. of Long Island Sound. Yeah. So uh, last but not least, uh, an area that we have celebrated in the past uh, on a number of occasions uh, between farmland and state land and forest preservation um mm-hmm. uh, you know having some good news in previous years but this year big red x uh, uh, on both of those columns and and i see that that may just be because of this kind of budget and financial situation that we're in uh statewide uh and the lack of at least public investment uh, in the past couple of years that's about right. One of the points we make in this report is that the, for the things we talked about earlier, like air quality and the quality of Long Island Sound, mm-hmm. we, we have goals, and they're, uh, they're really enforceable. Uh, we have goals for farmland and forest land, too, and preserved land in general, but, but they're not enforceable. I mean, they're, they're, the legislature set these goals, but they're not. You know, if we don't meet them, nothing happens, um, which you can't say about with the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. So, so yeah, when, when times are, money is tight, I guess, um, we don't put as much money into preserving land and conserving the wildlife that depends on that land. And uh, it, it shows in these indicators. Now, in 2015, more farmland was preserved than, it, than, it, than in some years, but it's not an, it wasn't enough to, for the state to meet its goals. And for preserved land of all types, uh, parks, forests, wildlife areas. Um, even though we had a fantastic project in the Essex, Westbrook, yeah. Old Saybrook area called the Preserve, right. uh, there still was not enough land preserved uh, to meet our goals. So that's why they got the big red X's there. Very good. And, and I'd, I'd add, too, the, uh, for the first time, we're tracking the status of forest birds, a, a group of species that depend on forests such as thrushes and warblers and uh the the long-term trend there is discouraging well uh that uh, just gives us something to uh watch out for and talk a little bit more uh when we visit again uh we appreciate you taking all the time Uh, a great conversation with carl wagner he's executive director for connecticut's council on environmental quality uh they just uh, completed uh, amassing the data and finished publishing their annual report if you'd like to read it or learn more about the work this organization does they've got a great 
a site with a lot of interactive features. You can click in and hear a lot more detail on the subjects that uh, Carl was talking about, including uh, this most recent concern about the forest bird populations. Just go to ct.gov slash CEQ and follow the prompts to review the report. And uh, Carl, we appreciate you taking the time, as always, uh, each year to help bring us up to speed on what CEQ is doing, keeping an eye on and how well Connecticut and our environment is doing. All right. Well, we're just uh, we're just joking with our our last guest of the program uh, this morning. Uh, Alicia Sharamut is back with us. She is the Lower Connecticut River Steward and Cleanup Coordinator for the Source to Sound uh, Cleanup, uh, which we'll be talking about. But uh, we were we were joking that uh, our our previous guest Carl Wagoner was also uh, tied to our first guest on the program. He's going to be a keynote at the uh, Connecticut Invasive Plant Working Group Symposium. And uh, uh, he also uh, works very closely with our current guest, Alicia Sharamut, with uh, the uh, River Steward and Cleanup Coordinator for the 20th Annual Source to See Cleanup coming up on September 23rd and 24th, uh, overseen by the Connecticut River Watershed Council. Uh, So, uh, Alicia, thanks for joining us once again to help prompt people to uh, not only come out for this important weekend, but uh, we're going to... talk to them about a a few ways that they can sort of keep their eye on the prize of our beautiful uh, and hopefully uh, as clean as possible and pristine waterways here in Connecticut. Um, Sure. Thank you for having me, John. Um, I am the Lower River Steward for the Connecticut River Watershed Council. The Watershed Council has been around since 1952 and has been a uh, primary advocate for uh, the Connecticut River I, uh, like I said, I'm the Lower River Steward. My jurisdiction is from the Mass border to Long Island Sound. And, um, you know, my job runs the gamut uh, from advocacy to restoration to conservation to recreation. Um, and also I coordinate the source to sea cleanup for all four states. Um, we have usually have over 2,000 volunteers. Um, last year we had about 150 groups that participated. Um, but I do want to point out this is our 20th annual, and it is on Friday, September 23rd, and the um, Saturday, September 24th. Oh, it's a Friday and a Saturday. Oh, a lot okay. of our gotcha. – we, we used to have it on one day, but we found that a lot of our corporate groups and employee work groups wanted to participate participate on Friday. So sure. we made it the two days to make it sort of more inclusive yeah. for all of those groups and school groups as well. Yeah. Paid day, like to participate on a Friday. Paid day of river cleanup. And what's better than yeah. that? Um, now, uh, while your primary responsibility is the uh, pristine and critical resource of the Connecticut River from Massachusetts to Connecticut, uh, do you also have uh, authority to act or intervene um, on the many uh, tributaries that feed the Connecticut River, or uh, or do you basically just uh, uh, you know stick between the banks? Well, no, my jurisdiction is the watershed. Um, however, we have a lot of wonderful um, river groups on the tributaries. The Scantic River has the Scantic River Watershed Association. The Farmington River has the Farmington River Watershed Association, with a, which has a staff of three and gets a lot of amazing work done. Um, the Eight Mile River and the Salmon River have a fantastic uh, uh, 
steward there. It's so, you know, the tributaries, uh, you know, I, I support their work for sure, but, you know, a lot of them are well taken care of by mm-hmm. other groups. But the watershed, the whole watershed is within CRWC's jurisdiction. Are, are there also concurrent cleanups that are happening on other water bodies on that same day, or is this really just, you know, throwing it all at the wall on the weekend of the 23rd and 24th? Um, no, there are some groups that participate earlier or later mm-hmm. that contribute to the cleanup. Um, and like I said, you know, this is a watershed-wide cleanup, so it's, you know, tributaries. The Farmington River has one of the largest groups, and they have about eight sites on the Farmington River that they will be doing on Saturday the 24th. Um, the Scantic River, they they have a bunch of different sites along the Scantic River. So it's not just, the, you know, mainly based in the, uh, on the on the river, Connecticut River itself, but through the whole watershed because, if we don't clean up the tributaries, we're going to end up with more trash in the in the Connecticut River because it's yeah. all going to wash down. So. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, to recap, uh, three important numbers uh, from 2015. Uh, the first is the excellent turnout. You 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 kind of uh, um, uh, did, did, didn't give it full credit when you said around 2,000 to 2,300 plus volunteers, I guess, uh, were uh, responsible for pulling more than 50 tons of trash uh, from almost 170 miles of riverbanks and waterways. Um, is the Connecticut River, I, I've, I've fished on it, I've boated on it, I've uh, seen it f- from beside the, the roadway uh, going uh, north and south, but um, are there areas uh, of the river where you actually uh, sort of uh, are able to clean the entire um, bed from bank to bank? Um, well, there are some groups that do whole sweeps, which is, you know, for instance, the Black River Action Team up in Vermont does a sweep of, of their river. And I guess it, it's somewhat similar in Farmington. Um, but usually trash builds up in uh, particular areas oh, um, and particular sites especially uh, recreation sites, um, you know, bait containers, unfortunately sure. liquor bottles. Yeah. Um, there's some areas where households trash and tires are dumped because they're easily accessible from the road mm. and people just dump their stuff there. So we, there are some areas that we know are going to be particularly trashy every year. And there are some, some that just don't collect large amounts of trash. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, uh, we, I know we talked a few moments before we uh, hit the microphone. Uh, you you uh, provide a, a, a opportunity for people to kind of keep tabs on trash building up on their favorite areas of the Connecticut River, right? Yeah, yeah, and we we have a way for people to let us know about it because we really want to know about the trashy areas on the river. So if you go to our website, uh, ctriver.org, and you click on Get Involved, um, there is a um, there's an area where you can report a trash site, mm-hmm. um, and you can go in. You can give us the coordinates. You can drop a pin on a map. It makes it really easy, and let us know what kind of trash is there. You know, it gives us all the information we need so that when people call us and say, "Where can I, you know, clean up?" We can say, "Well, we know this area is right here because." As much as I'd love to spend all of my time on the river, <laughs> mm. I don't see all of the areas. And I know there are a lot of people that spend, you know, anglers, um, people who boat, um, especially those people who know their areas really well. Mm-hmm. 
I hope they, they can let us know about the areas that tend to be trashy. And also this year, we've added an Adopt-A-Trash site. Oh, so okay. if you are interested in heading up a cleanup group but not sure where you want to go, we have pins on a map um, that show areas that we know are trashy and we need groups to go in and clean them. Very good. Uh, so in the in the last uh, part of the program that we have, let's uh, make sure people are, are well prepared to do the most best good if they're coming out to the 20th annual Source to See Cleanup on the weekend of September 23rd and 24th. Uh, first of all, um, do you depend on people to come uh, both uh, dressed and equipped to uh, jump right in, if you will? Yeah, I certainly wouldn't wear your best clothes. It's dirty work, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun, um, and it's very rewarding. So, you know, coming with, you know, dressed appropriately with, you know, protective footgear because you never know what could be out there. Um, mm-hmm. In some areas, they do find needles. Mm-hmm. Um, we offer gloves. Um, we offer, um, it, well, it's a group. Um, and I should point out as well that if you're not interested in heading up a group, you can also find a group to join on our website. So we have a, another map where someone can look and find groups in your area that are looking for volunteer. Um, and most of the time, and those groups provide the supplies, whether they're providing them, you know, from their own resources or we provide them to to those groups. Um, you know, you can show up that there'd be gloves in a bag and tell you where to go. Okay, super. And um, do people who are uh, either inclined or already equipped, uh, perhaps for uh, working around their their homes or properties, are there particular tools that people might bring uh, that where they can be assigned to uh, uh, to do a particular uh, type of ch- chore as part of the source to see cleanup? Um. Yeah, well, if, if you're joining a group, um, usually the group leaders will have a plan as to um, what 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 areas need to be cleaned up. Okay, so people don't, don't people don't need to show up with rakes or, or hose or any kind of uh, specific uh, um, you know garden or yard tools uh, as long as they have uh, uh, protective clothing and they're ready to dig in and get dirty. Uh, essentially, um, materials will be supplied to them at the sites. Yep, that's pretty much it. Unless they are they're willing to um, to actually uh, lead a group, and we have a lot of resources on our website about the things that they will need. We provide all of the waivers, um, and we if uh, supplies are requested, we send the supplies out. And mm-hmm. I encourage people if they want to lead a group to register soon so we can make sure we get those supplies out to them. Excellent. And as I'm looking at the website, I see a, a, a video here. How about boat owners, especially owners that have boats that can can carry a lot of stuff? Uh, d- 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 would you be interested in, uh, um, in learning about uh, or having folks, uh, you know, like that participate? Oh, yes, because there are so many areas where people on foot can't reach um, or areas where it's, a hike in, for example, a very good example is uh, River Highland State Park. The area down, there's sort of a beach area there that has a campground or a campsite, and the area down there is very trashy, but there are tires and a lot of heavy things. And people could pack it out, I suppose, Mm. But it would be great to be able to have someone there with a boat that can collect that trash. Yeah, a but, couple of, yeah couple, boats are definitely needed, and I encourage yeah. people to contact me if they have a boat to offer. Yeah, a couple of big empty pontoon boats with a with just a, a pilot uh, probably could carry a, a lot of stuff. 
They absolutely can. Excellent. Yep. Well, there's an opportunity out there for you boat owners that are listening that might want to get involved uh, in some capacity. Uh, once again, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Alicia Sharma. She is a lower Connecticut River steward and cleanup coordinator uh, in, uh, and uh, coordinating the Connecticut River, uh, Massachusetts to Long Island t- Sound Source to Sea Cleanup. It's the 20th annual Source to Sea Cleanup. <clears throat> happening on September 23rd and 24th. As you heard earlier in the program, they'd cer- certainly welcome uh, corporate groups and other individuals who might want to come out on Friday, September 23rd, and then uh, have you back or have some new folks show up on September 24th. You can get started at ctriver.org. Uh, you can find a group or find ways to participate, but uh, the object is to get yourself uh, registered and on board as quickly as possible. So go to ct triver.org and uh, we will uh, bid you farewell Alicia with that uh, and thank you so much for coming back on the program and talking about this uh, critically important annual project and we hope uh, to talk to you again next year and in the interim if there's anything we can do for you just uh, please be in touch thanks for being on the program You've been listening to our award-winning public affairs program for the people. The opinions expressed on this broadcast represent those of our guests and host and do not necessarily represent the views of Connoisseur Media. If you have a suggestion for a guest, an issue, or a community calendar item relevant to the audience and communities we serve, you must make a request for consideration in writing via email to me at john.vocat at connoisseurct.com. We do not accept pitches or requests for coverage by phone. Remember, no part of this program may be copied, disseminated, or rebroadcast. Our public file reflecting the full scope of our station's responsiveness to critical issues in the communities we serve can be viewed upon request weekdays during normal business hours in the New Haven area at 440 Wheeler's Farms Road in Milford and for our Hartford stations at 869 Blue Hills Avenue in Bloomfield. Our theme music is by Rick Miller and Scott's with original music by Noel Viette. This is John Voquette, Director of Public Affairs for Connoisseur Media. Join us again at this time next week for more conversation and information on the award-winning For the People. Don't forget, you can listen to this and other For the People podcasts anytime on iTunes or under the podcast tab at our radio station's website. Until this time next week, thanks for listening.